This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Well, this evening we return to our studies in Jeremiah. We took a a break from Jeremiah for a month uh, in September, but we return this evening to our study of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah has 52 chapters. We are tonight in chapters 24 and 25, or part of 25. Just kind of lay out where we're headed generally. Uh, This really puts us at uh, about halfway or more than halfway through the book, uh, because uh, toward the end of Jeremiah, you get into various uh, chapters dealing with judgments on various nations around Israel. Uh, and as I did when we went through Isaiah, we probably will uh, not go through all of those, maybe sample one, uh, but probably not go through every one of them. Uh, so it's quite possible that we are more than halfway through our study of Jeremiah, which is a big book, but it's a book for God's people today. Jeremiah, uh, like all of Scripture, Old and New Testament, points us to God's grace for us in Christ, uh, our need of that grace, as Jeremiah uh, uh, tirelessly uh, reminds not only Israel and Jerusalem then, but us today. So this evening, we are looking at chapters 24, uh, verses 1 through 10, into chapter 25, through verse 14. So hear the word of God from Jeremiah 24, verse 1. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs. The other basket had very bad figs, so bad they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I said, Figs, the good figs very good, and the bad figs very bad, so bad they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. But, thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and to their fathers. 
the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For Twenty-three years, in the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you, and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, to your own harm. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. And after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon the land all the words I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. Give thanks to the Lord for his holy word. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. Yours is a word that gives life. Your word is trustworthy. It is reliable. It is faithful. Father, it shoots straight with us even when the news is bad. And Father, we pray that as we study this passage tonight, we would be reminded both of our own fallen nature, our own sinfulness, but also, Lord, of the magnificent grace of God that can save even people like us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come back to Jeremiah, uh, just a, a brief summary. Jeremiah is ministering in Jerusalem, in Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel, uh, that division, of course, occurred after uh, King Solomon with Rehoboam, and still reigning in Jerusalem. Jeroboam, son of Debat, becoming king of the northern tribes. Uh, those northern tribes have since fallen to the Assyrians. Judah is left, Jerusalem, but things are bleak. Jeremiah and other prophets, of course, have tried to call the people away from their Baal worship and other pagan deities and back to the covenant, back to the Lord their God, back to the one who redeemed them out of Egypt and brought them into this land. But uh, for the most part, his pleas, his preaching fell on deaf ears. And God had threatened to bring uh, a nation from the north against Jerusalem, and in fact has done that with the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, uh, same thing, same people, and Nebuchadnezzar, their king. And at this point, actually, there has already been a deportation. 
There have been those who have been taken to exile in Babylon. And we see this in, in verse 1. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king, king of Judah, together with these various groups, officials of Judah, uh, craftsmen, metal workers, had taken them to Babylon. You see, the Babylonians weren't stupid. They recognized if there were good people in town, they could take those good people. And maybe they could use those good people. In fact, we have a whole book of the Bible that follows up on some of that. Anybody know what book it is? Not Ruth, Daniel. Remember Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego? Strange that we know Daniel by his Hebrew name and his friends by their Babylonian names, but that's, that's the way it, it is. Uh, but remember, they were in Babylon. And uh, Daniel and his friends and others that the king had taken and uh, trained and educated uh, for service in Babylon. And that's where some of these uh, people in Babylon came in, these deportations. So he took the best. took away all these, uh, all these people. In fact, in 2 Kings 24, which is sort of the historical record of this, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, this is 2414, 2 Kings. Nebuchadnezzar carried away all Jerusalem, all the officials, mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. Uh, Phil Riken, in his commentary, put it this way. All the courtiers, soldiers, civil servants, doctors, lawyers, priests, honor students, and eagle scouts had been taken captive. Uh, Babylon is not stupid. If there's good people, they want to see if they can bring them in and incorporate them and use them in their own kingdom. If they will be loyal to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, then they might have a decent life of it uh, in their new environment in Babylon. And so that's what's going on here. Now, you'll recall that Jeremiah has already counseled people to surrender to Babylon. Extremely unpopular advice. And yet that was the message that he had uh, declared to them back in chapter 21. Uh, verse 8, I set before you the way of life, the way of death. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, famine, pestilence. He who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life for a prize of war. Jeremiah's counsel was surrender. Give in to the Babylonians. There's no point in fighting. God has determined this judgment against you. If you would save your life, if you would avoid this suffering, surrender and go to them. Well, we don't know that these so much surrendered as they fell. They were taken. There was this deportation. But nevertheless, there were these who wound up in uh, Babylon, and there were those still left in Jerusalem under King Zedekiah. Now, it's in that context, then, that the Lord gives this vision to Jeremiah, the end of chapter 1. The Lord showed me a vision. Two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. Almost like an offering. Uh, there in the presence of the Lord. And in one basket, uh, there were good figs, like first ripe figs. Those first to come, very plump, tasty, good figs. The other basket had very bad figs, so bad they could not be eaten. Terrible figs. Now, these figs, and the Lord says, what do you see, Jeremiah? Uh, which is sort of a formula of saying, you know, look at this vision, think about it. What does this say to you? What do you see? Figs, very good figs, very bad figs, so bad they can't be eaten. Now those figs represent those two groups of people. Those who've been hauled away into exile in Babylon. 
those who are still left in Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. One of those is bad figs, one of those is good figs, but it may surprise you which is which. It may not be who you think they would be. There are those who are left in their sin, those who are going to experience God's grace, but they're not who you think they might be. Well, let's look at them, Uh, just like we tend to take bad news first, then the good news. Let's look at the bad figs first, and then the good figs. Bad figs are those remaining in Jerusalem, which is precisely the opposite of what they would have thought. They would have thought, well, we were not taken into captivity. We were not taken off into into exile in Babylon. We're still here in Jerusalem. We're still here in the land. God's favor, right? No, not at all. They've escaped exile, at least to this point. And yet, Jeremiah's message is that they are the ones who had faced the wrath of God. Look at verse 8, chapter 24, verse 8. Thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so I will treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in the land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. Apparently some of them had gone down to Egypt for help or for asylum to get out of the, uh, the way of Babylon. Uh, it was a constant temptation, ironically, for Israel to look to Egypt for help. Well, they'd been brought out of Egypt. Egypt was the enemy. Egypt was not their friend. But in their uh, lack of faith, instead of turning to the Lord, they would turn to Egypt. And some of them had gone down to Egypt. Now, notice what happens. The Lord says, I will make them repulsive to all. Verse 9. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, a curse, in all the places where I drive them. They would suffer the ravages of war and conquest. Uh, Verse 10. I will send sword, famine, pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land I gave to them and to their fathers. And they would, as chapter 25, verse 9 and following tells us, they would endure destruction. I will send for all the tribes of the north, for Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, everlasting desolation. And that picture of the end of joy, the end of mirth, um, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the bride, the, 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 the ongoing sounds of daily life, the grinding of the millstones, the light of the lamp, just the things you take for granted are gone because of the Lord's destruction. The whole land will become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Why? Well, if you've been listening at all in our studies in Jeremiah, you know why, but Jeremiah repeats it here uh, in chapter 25, uh, verses 1 and following. This prophecy actually speaks of a situation earlier, but it explains why. It explains why. Uh, Because the Lord has sent his prophets. He's spoken persistently. You've neither listened, you've not inclined your ear, though the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants the prophets. Time, time. Time, turn away from those idols, turn back to me, prophet after prophet. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't do it. They continue to pursue other gods. They continue to offend the Lord. They continue to sin against Him in their worship, in the way they lived. In verse 7, the Lord says, You've not listened to me, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. 
And so all of this, this judgment on the Lord is coming because of their persistent rebellion. They were persistent refusal to listen to his word, to repent. But not only that, not only Judah and Jerusalem, but even Babylon itself, after 70 years, the Lord says he's going to bring nations against them. Now, God is just. And you may recall that when God brought Israel into the land of Canaan, they displaced nations that were already there. And bringing Israel in was God's judgment on those nations for their wickedness. But now God brought in the Babylonians, first the Assyrians for the northern part, and the Babylonians for the southern part. But even Babylon in its time is going to receive its due from from God, from his justice. So it's not just rebellious Judah. But Babylon, yes, a wicked nation, a pagan nation, worshiping its idols, an offense to the Lord. This is a picture not just of the world then, it's a picture of the world now. That all of us stand accused under verses 1 through 8, apart from God's grace. God reveals himself to us in creation. God reveals himself to us through our own conscience, as we spoke of this morning, knowing what is right, knowing what is wrong, even apart from the word of God. And God certainly has spoken to so many of us through his word in a land like ours that has had the light of the word of God. And yet how many pursue their own way, go their own way, sin against the Lord. But you know, they seem to get away with it. So many people seem to just go on, like the Babylonians or even like Jerusalem. They thought, well, we'll just live as we want to. We're the ones who were spared. You know, we're not in exile like those other people are. Things are going pretty well for us. That's a problem that comes up several places in the Bible. You know, the wicked, those who rebel against the Lord, who refuse to bow the knee to Christ, who think, well, nothing happens to me. I remember reading a book. Uh, it was in a Victorian literature class in college. I was an English major. You usually don't wind up into those unless you major in English. But it was about a boy who was pondering the existence of God. And he thought, well... God doesn't like idolatry, so I'm going to pray. I'm going to worship and pray to this chair. And he did that. And then he waited for God to strike him down. God didn't strike him down. Ergo, there must be no God. Well, that's rather foolish. But we tend to think on that level. Anyway, well, I go on living. Nothing bad has happened to me. Now, that's a problem for those who think that way. And it's also a problem for those who love the Lord and yet suffer, even while the wicked seem to do okay. Remember Psalm 73, that's where Asaph was. Asaph was very much troubled by the prosperity of the wicked. Psalm 73, whole psalm is is struggling with why do the righteous seem to suffer and the wicked seem to prosper. Uh, He said, I envied prosperity of the wicked. their, Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And as he thought about this and thought about his own sufferings, he said in verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. It bothered him until he gained God's perspective and saw that the day is coming when they will be justly rewarded for their rebellion against God. A scary thing. Terrible thing. Not something to delight in that anyone should receive his just deserts from the Lord of heaven and earth. But but that's where that's where Asaph was and that's where we often are. 
but people who are complacent. You know, they think they have the world on a string, not encumbered by religion, can live as they please. But what a blindness. What a darkness. What a slavery. Another passage, 2 Peter 3, 4, uh, perhaps familiar to you, where Peter says, they will say, being skeptical of the idea of the return of Christ, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Nothing's happened. Everything just goes on. Peter does point out they deliberately forget about God's judgment and the flood. But that's, that was kind of the thinking that was taking place in Jerusalem. Well, we're still here. You know, we're living our own way, but some of us got taken off. But hey, we're still here in Jerusalem. Well, dangerous way to think. Because the Lord has said, no, they too will go and they will suffer terribly because of his purpose to judge Jerusalem for its wickedness. Now, that's the bad figs. Let's go back and look at the good figs in verses 4 through 7. By the way, notice that God spoke of that 70 years in exile. That is his judgment. It is his chastening. And yet there would be those who survive it, who come through it and return. It would be only 70 years. It would be limited. And you see the mercy of God there, that even when he chastens his people, he does so mercifully. He does so uh, in a limited way. And that that discipline, that chastening would be limited to 70 years before some good things begin to happen to them. Look at uh, verses 4 through 7. Let's look at the good figs now. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, So I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. First thing you notice here is that they were sent by the hand of God. They weren't unlucky. They weren't the unlucky ones who got hauled off into Babylon. They were in God's hand. It was God who sent them and in many ways spared them later horrors that were to occur in Jerusalem. I will regard as good the exiles from Judah. Now notice, God doesn't say they're good. They're not. In many ways, these people were no different from the ones who remained behind in Jerusalem. God doesn't say, I look at them and they're good. God says, I will regard as good the exiles from Judah. What is that? Well, in New Testament terms, what we think of there is justification. You know, God's, God's regarding us as righteous in Christ. Are we righteous? No, not in ourselves. But Christ died for those sins. God gives to us that obedient righteousness of Christ, and he regards us as righteous in Christ Jesus. This is grace. God can regard them as good because they would have a Savior who would come, future from this point, Uh, who would come and die for them and justify them so that they could be regarded as good. The Lord has sent them away, but he's going to justify them. And then in verse 6, I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. What is this? Well, this is redemption. It sort of sounds like a second exodus. You know how God brought Israel out of Egypt. Well, here he's going to bring them back out of Babylon. And you read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah where that happened. 
The Lord says, I set my eyes on them for good, to do them good, and I will bring them back. I will build them up and not tear them down. Plant them, not uproot them. Well, when they were in Babylon, it may not have felt like a great deal of good, although we see how the Lord used Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, tested their faith, tested their witness there in Babylon. The Lord said all of this is ultimately going to be for their good, and I will bring them back. Verse 7, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. In New Testament terms, we'd call that regeneration. You know, Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Spiritually dead, spiritual corpses, unresponsive to God, incapable of responding to the Lord. What did these people need? They needed a new heart to respond to the Lord. And the Lord says, I will give them that, to know that I am the Lord. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. They shall return to me with a whole heart. What is that? Well, that is a covenant relationship. Remember, that's God's relationship from Abraham on, expressed in those simple terms. They will be my people. I will be their God. There will be this close relationship, this bond, this connection, this covenant between God's redeemed people and the Lord himself. We didn't know better. If we weren't reading in the Old Testament, we might say he's talking about Christians here. Right? Justified, uh, redeemed, regenerate in a covenant relationship with the Lord? Absolutely. Because just like in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, the people were saved by grace through faith. And what Jerusalem needed more than anything else was some regenerate hearts to, to know the Lord and to love the Lord. And that was fulfilled in this group that returned to Jerusalem. They would be a people who love the Lord. And they come back, and you see that with Jeremiah, with uh, Nehemiah, uh, Ezra and his teaching, preaching the Word, explaining the Word of God, and the people standing out in the rain, listening to it in Ezra. Nehemiah going back, and they got the temple rebuilt. Nehemiah goes back, and they're rebuilding the walls, trusting in the Lord, calling on the Lord to protect them. You see the difference among those who returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the walls and started over there, the difference between them and the people 70 years earlier who had been deported from Jerusalem. They loved the Lord. They trusted the Lord. They knew the Lord. But you see, they were the ones that the people still in Jerusalem would have looked at and said, well, how unfortunate. Dragged off Babylon. Poor miserable people. You see, they had it all wrong. They were the ones in their comfort in Jerusalem who were in the bullseye of God's judgment. It was the people who had been carried off into exile, seen as miserable, seen as pitiable, who were going to be the recipients of God's grace and had a future in relationship with the Lord. You know, it sounds a lot like what Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 1, when he talked about God's people. And he said, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
What is more weak? What is more foolish? What is more nothing? What is more low than a crucified Savior? And yet it says we trust in Him, as we believe in Him, as we follow Him. Despite the world's scorn, despite the world's mocking, that the end will show that it's we in Christ who have life, and not this world that boasts of all its pomp and show. So which are you? I love that scene in The Wizard of Oz where Glenda the Good shows up, you know, the bubble girl, bubble lady comes in to Munchkin land and appears in all the Munchkins' Twitter, and she looks at Dorothy and she asks that great question on behalf of the Munchkins, are you a good witch or a bad witch? Well, let's adapt that and ask the question, are you a good fig or a bad fig? Into which basket do you fit? Are you one of those who takes your comfort in the world and the protection and security that it seems to offer? Or are you one of those who are willing to go to Christ outside the camp, to live in exile in this world as a follower of Jesus, but who ultimately have a future and a hope? Bad figs, good figs, which one are you? Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that by your grace we would be good figs that we would be those who have experienced your saving grace in Christ, that we have been regarded by you as good, not because we are, but because Jesus was for us. We've been redeemed out of bondage to sin and who have a heart to know you, to be your people, and to delight that you are our God. Father, as we live for you this week, help us to live as a people in exile, but to realize, Father, that we live as those who anticipate confidently a future home. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.